Well, good morning. My name's Andrew. I'm the uh, student ministries pastor here. Um, but real quick, uh, where are all the VBS kids in the house? Are all the VBS kids here? Yes, nice. I got a question real quick for you. Which of the VBS kids knows the memory verse and the hand motions? You have VBS kids know the memory verse and the hand motions? If you know the memory verse and the hand motions, come up on stage real quick. If you know it, if you know the memory verse, you know the hand motions. You, you, I think you know it. You don't know it? Give thanks to the Lord. Oh, she knows it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, come up on stage real quick. All right. To get things started today, I, I thought it would be important for us to uh, kind of either remind you if you were there at VBS or, or inform you if you weren't. Yes, one more. Come on up. Uh, real quick, just what our key verse was of the week. And so, actually, can all my helpers here, real quick, some of you have the mic, some of you don't, just yell. Um, can we teach them our, our key verse in our hand motions? Are you ready? You ready? All right, let's teach them. Let's do it once, real quick. Do it slow. So they can see. All right, here we go. We're going to give thanks to the Lord because he is good and his faithful love endures forever. Let's do it one more time so they know. You got it? You got it? All right, here we go. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his faithful love endures forever. All right, thank you. Round of applause. That's First Chronicles. Go, guys. That's 1 Chronicles 16.34. There's your key verse. And the reason why I want to start off with that and I want to have the kids do it and to teach you the hand motions is because I want that to be in your mind. I want you to remember that real quick uh, as we look uh, just quickly at some stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15. So if you have a Bible, feel free to turn to Luke 15. Uh, but as you do, I, I thought it would be important to kind of start off with a story. Uh, those of you who know me know I like to start off with a little story, usually a story that I experienced. Uh, and today I thought, you know what would be interesting? I should tell you about the most intense mission trip I've ever been on. And I thought it was important because it actually happened when I was a lot of these VVS kids' age. When I was someone like Connor's age or Holland's age. And when I was an elementary kid, that's when this happened. So I, I went down to Mexico with my family, and we were with the church, and we were doing a mission project we do every year down there. And while we're down there, we actually stay in this little compound. And in this compound, there's a bunch of rooms with bunk beds, and, and other people come down, and they stay there, and we're staying there. And, and the very first morning, we wake up to this excitement, to this rush, to this energy in the place. And I don't know what's going on. People are just yelling. They're, they're pulling me out of my bunk bed, and I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. So I come running out into the courtyard. In the courtyard, there's all these people gathering, a huge crowd, and there's a semicircle. Now, uh, I'm, I'm a VBS kid size. I can't see what's going on. So I have to kind of weasel my way through the crowd, get up into the front. Um, and that was kind of a mistake, because what I saw shocked me. See, inside, uh, in the front of this circle, there was one of our close family friends, and in his hand was a rattlesnake. Apparently, a rattlesnake had gotten into our facilities, and somehow he had caught it. And now, like a little kid at show and tell, he had been holding this rattlesnake and opening its mouth for everyone to see. It was like it was his pet. Now, as you might imagine, here's the thing. Rattlesnakes uh, aren't pets. If you have a pet rattlesnake, I don't want to come over. <laughs> They're not pets. See, rattlesnakes are wired for something. They're wired to defend themselves, and they're wired to bite with a deadly bite. If, and so, like a rattlesnake is wired to do, in a, in a split second when my friend loosened his grip for just a moment, the rattlesnake turned and bit him right on the arm. Yeah, 
That's, that was our reaction too. Now in pain, he, he kind of threw the rattlesnake off and he got it in a safe distance away from everyone, but then everyone realized what had just happened. There's someone who had been bitten by a rattlesnake and we need to figure out what to do. And so everyone just quickly got into emergency mode. They tried to figure out what was going on. Uh, there was a boy scout from another church and he tried to come in and like MacGyver the situation. And so he like got a little tourniquet and he tried to do the thing where you like, you know, suck the, the venom out and, and spit it out. But um, that works a little better in Westerns um, than it does in real life. Thankfully, though, the, the people in charge started to get him and they brought him over. Uh, into a van and they rushed them to the nearest hospital. And so uh, they rush into this hospital in Mexico and the first thing they hear is that there's no anti-venom. There's no anti-venom. They got to figure out something else. And so they rush to the border and they're rushing to the border and they're calling 911 and thankfully there's, uh, there's an ambulance waiting on the other side and they help rush them through, which is a little stressful, as you know, trying to rush through that as well. And, and so they're getting them through, they get them in the ambulance, they take them to the hospital and when he gets to the hospital, he gets the antivenom he needs. It doesn't totally end there because from there we had to wait. And what's interesting is, is we kind of noticed uh, that the, the hospital didn't seem like they were that prepared. They didn't seem like they were that ready. I mean, we had called ahead of time. They knew we were coming, but it didn't seem like they kind of had ever done this before. And so I remember one of the people with us asked like, oh, how many rattlesnake bites do you get a year? I mean, you're in a dry, warm place. There's got to be a few. Um, to which they just said, we've only had one ever before. And it was someone who had a pet rattlesnake and it bit them in the face. I was like, what? You've only had one ever before. So they didn't know what they were doing. And, and there's this, all this stress coming um, and so we just had to wait, and, and, and we're realizing in this moment, look, rattlesnakes are not pets. They're not meant to be snuggled. They're met, not meant to be cuddled or, or to be pet or brushed at night. Uh, they're wired for something that's not meant to be a pet. So next few hours, we're waiting, and his arm is swelling and swelling, and it's just getting scary, and, and the nurses are marking it with a Sharpie just to see, but thankfully, the anti-venom takes a hit. It starts to work, and his arm... Uh, is healing, and he is healing, and we're all feeling better. And in that moment, um, my friend, he makes a, a serious life change. He decides that no longer will he go and catch or pet rattlesnakes. <laughs> See, here's the thing. Rattlesnakes are wired to strike. They're wired to defend themselves. They're not wired to be pets. And the reason I bring this up is because as we look into Luke 15, Jesus is going to show us something. He's going to show us that God is wired for something too. He's going to show us that God is wired to love us with his unfailing love. VBS kids in the room, what's our memory verse again? Give thanks to the Lord, right? For he is good and his faithful love endures forever. And that's what Jesus wants to show us. And that's really what our big idea is. And so if you're taking notes, here's your big idea. Your big idea is that the unfailing love of God wants, a, the God of unfailing love wants a, a life with you now and forever. The God of unfailing love wants a life with you now and forever. It's like we were singing just right before this, this reckless love song. Uh, it's a love that wants you so greatly that sometimes we can't comprehend what it is. And so hopefully you're in Luke 15, because in Luke 15 we're going to just quickly look at these three stories real, real fast, back to back to back, as Jesus is trying to, to explain to the people listening this exact uh, big idea. And so Luke 15, uh, 1 and 2, let's start there. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
Okay, I'm stopping there just for like a, a very quick second because what I want you guys to know, and I think what is important for us, is that these first two verses tell us who the audience is. These first two verses tell us there's two groups of people listening to Jesus. There's the sinners or the tax collectors. And then, and sort of what he's trying to say is, there's these quote-unquote righteous people. He's not saying they're righteous people. He's saying they're righteous people. And he wants that to be known because uh, the, the reason it's important for us to see this is because then we can see what Jesus is trying to tell them and what he's trying to tell us as well. Jesus is trying to reveal how the Father feels about the lost. Let's take a look at the first story. If you're following along, this first one is about a lost sheep, and we sang about it right before. Verse 3, Then Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after that lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it over his shoulders and then goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Okay, stop right here. Here's a, here's a story Jesus is telling us, and it's about a lost sheep. What's interesting is he never tells us how or why the sheep got lost. We don't know. We don't know. Was it a rebellious sheep that just thought like, oh, you know what? I can do things better than the shepherd. He doesn't know what he's doing. Was it a sheep that got distracted by something shiny? I mean, which of us hasn't gotten distracted by something shiny and fallen it and, and until we, we realize all of a sudden we're lost? Maybe it was a sheep that was injured. Someone or something came and injured the sheep, and because of that, it separated itself from the group. We don't know why the sheep got lost. That's not the point of the story. What Jesus is trying to show is actually the shepherd and what he does. He's, he's trying to say, say, no, no, look, don't worry about how the sheep got lost. You guys all think that's common. The original audience is like, oh, that happens every day. But what's, what's surprising is that the shepherd goes. I mean, why, why does he go? Should, should he go? Is it really the wisest decision to, to leave 99 sheep behind uh, just to go after one? But Jesus is trying to show you just how much he values each and every single sheep. And because of that value, and because he values the sheep, and because he searches for the lost one, it's found. And there's a celebration that comes. Jesus is trying to tell them that the God of unfailing love wants a life with you now and forever. But Jesus, in kind of a Jesus fashion, wants to make sure his point gets across. And so he actually tells another story right afterwards. And it's the story of the lost coin. And so if you're following along, you can write the story of the lost coin. And he's doing this as really a similar story. And the purpose of which is to really make sure that they, they understand what's going on. So verse 8, it says this, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, for I found my coin. Super short story, but it's a similar story with a similar emphasis, right? Here is something that is lost, and here is someone who won't give up until they find it, who is searching with all that they have. And because of that unwillingness to give up, and because of that dedication to find the lost, uh, that lost item is found. Jesus is trying to tell them, Look, the God of unfailing love wants a life with you now and forever. Finally, Jesus caps it off with one more story, and really just because he wants to make sure that they're understanding what's going on, he wants to make sure that this point gets across to these two different groups, two very different groups. And what he does is he tells them now the story of the lost son. He's telling them the story of the lost son. And it's, one of the, it's the biggest of the three stories, and it's the one uh, that's, that's really pushing his point across, and many of you probably have heard it before, or we've taught it at VBS or something like that. You may know it as the prodigal son. Um, but in this story, Jesus is telling 
uh, the people, again, that the God of unfailing love wants a life with you now and forever. And so by doing that, what he does is, is let me summarize just for a second to get to the to good part. Jesus is saying, all right, here's this guy. He's got two sons. And the younger one is this rebellious son. He's rebellious. He thinks he can do better on his own. And so he does the absolute unthinkable. He goes up to his father and he says, I want my inheritance now. I want my money right now. And basically by doing that, what he's saying is, you're no good to me. I wish you were dead. Yeah, feel that uncomfortableness. Feel that. That's what the audience felt. Feel that uncomfortableness. He's telling his father, I wish you were dead. Give me what, give me what I would get if you were gone. This isn't like a teenager in a fit of rage when their cell phone's taken away, spewing something off they don't mean, right? This is someone with a straight face going right up to him and telling him, I wish you were dead. It's shocking. But I think what was more shocking was how the father responded. Because he didn't respond in anger. He didn't respond in yelling. He didn't respond in violence or anything like this. Instead, he gives him exactly what he asked for. And to do it, he had to go off and sell some property. And for the original audience, this, this was a cultural thing that, that made an impact. And, and we kind of missed that a little bit um, today. Maybe not. Maybe you think, oh, wow, I would have to sell my house and downsize in order to give that money away. And that's a stressful thought in itself. Um, but really, when he has to do this, now this incident becomes public. Now this humiliation that the father faces becomes public. Everybody knows about it. It's no longer just an insult face-to-face. Now it's an insult that everyone knows. You better believe everyone was talking about it too. Well, Jesus keeps talking and the, the story comes on and, and the son gets his money, he goes off, you know, you know how it goes. He lives, he lives it up for a second, then a famine hits, he loses it all and he begins to suffer. And he, he's eating trash, he, he has nowhere to live, and you know, everything's gone wrong and I just imagine at this moment that all the people listening are like, good, it's about time he got what he deserved. And maybe these quote-unquote righteous people are, are, are thinking, hey, you know what? Finally, Jesus is starting to tell a story that we can get behind. Jesus is starting to tell all these, these people in here what we've been saying for a while. They're about to get what they deserve. But that's not where the story ends. As you know, the story continues, and, and the son uh, just in his, all his suffering goes up and, and realizes, you know what, I, I got to do something different. I can't live like this. And so he decides to go home, but he knows that in going home, he, he can no longer uh, just ask for forgiveness. He can no longer just become a son, and so he comes in his mind that he's going to become a servant. He figures, you know what, being the lowest on the totem pole, even with my dad, is better than where I am now. I can no longer be a son, but even just on the bottom, it's better than what I have. And so he begins to travel back, and as he travels back, he does what a lot of us do when we uh, do something wrong, when we go a little too far, or, or maybe when uh, mom goes away from the weekend and dad's in charge and the, the shenanigans get a little too out of control, uh, the pillow fort's a little too high, a couple of lamps are break or, or whatnot, he begins to rehearse a speech. He begins to rehearse a speech. He wants to have the right words at the right time. He wants to, he wants to be able to, to kind of set himself up for success. And so he's walking back and he's rehearsing the speech, but it doesn't quite go as it planned because uh, before he can do anything, his father sees him in the horizon. His father has been waiting, hoping, praying for him to come back. And that's where we're going to pick up real quick is in verse 20 because I want to read this interaction uh, in a sense in real time. So Jesus is trying to build to this point uh, and he's saying, uh, but why, while he, a.k.a. the son, was still a long way away, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. 
And so he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, like his speech he's been practicing, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Let's celebrate. And so they began to celebrate. This interaction, I have to imagine, was surprising for all of them. It's surprising a little bit for us today, but even more, I have to imagine, it just made them feel uncomfortable, right? Uh, See, the father sees the son and he begins to run out to him. And this isn't like a Nicholas Sparks movie. It's not like a slow motion in a field of flowers uh, that's cinematic and, and powerful. This is a very awkward thing. This is a very uncomfortable thing. But he does it for a purpose. If you remember at the beginning, the, 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 the father had to sell some land, and so this, this incident became very public. Uh, and so when the son would be coming back, the whole town would have known about it. The whole town would have known what he would have done. And you better believe they would not have been the forgiving type. They would have let him hear it. They would have, they would have maybe even just chased him out of town. And so the father knows that this is going to happen, and he doesn't want his son to experience this uh, humiliation. He doesn't want him to suffer this pain. And, and so what he does is yet again chooses to take the humiliation for himself. Like I said, it's not a Nicholas Sparks movie. Uh, the, the father would have to like kind of gird up his little, his little robe and just like waddle like a penguin out there. I mean, that's not the most graceful thing. They're not writing movies about that. But he does it because he loves him with this unfailing love. And because of that, he's restored, the son is restored, and he, he's celebrated. And, and there's some more to the story, and we'll get to that at a different time. But, but really what Jesus is saying for this section is, don't you remember the scriptures? He's saying, don't you remember the scriptures? Don't you remember our story together? He's saying, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. See, here's the thing. He is the God of unfailing love. And, and the God of unfailing love, uh, he wants a life with us now and forever. And so the tricky part is, is that like the coin, right? Like the coin, like the sheep, uh, and, and definitely like the sun, we have life happen. And when life begins to happen, uh, things, things kind of separate us from God, right? We have sin, we have shame, we have pride, we may have hurt that's, that, that is being brought upon us by other things. All these things begin to separate us from God. And, and when we become separated from God, what happens is that we break. We break. And we feel like we're shattered into a hundred pieces. But here's what Jesus is saying, especially through these stories. He's saying, no, 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 remember the scriptures. Remember Because when you immerse yourself in the love, in the unfailing love of God, and you immerse yourself in that, when you immerse yourself in my love, in my hope, in in what I have to give you, well, you're no longer broken. Now, you become restored. You become brand new. Just like before. You know, what's crazy is that there's still some pieces in here. 
He doesn't even need all the pieces to restore you back to what you were, to make you better. He's saying, this is your story. This is the story in baptism. You go down into the water, and then you come up again. And he's saying, you're, you're dying to your old life. And now you're, you're being, can my volunteers help me with this real quick? Just cover that. Uh, you're, you're being uh, down with your old life, and now you're, you're coming up again. The old life is gone. The new with Jesus is here. And so the, the natural question should then be, well, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? I think in our main verse, it tells us pretty clearly what it means. I mean, David says it at the very beginning. He says, give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord. It's a response, a response of worship. See, here's the truth. Just like the rattlesnake was wired to defend itself, just like God is wired to love us with his unending love, we too are wired for something. We are wired to worship. We're wired to give ourselves to something or someone. See, in his book, uh, The Air We Breathe, there's a pastor, his name's Louis Giglio, and and he writes this, he says, uh, so how do you know what you worship? He says, it's easy. Simply follow the trail of your time your affection, your money, or your allegiance. At that end of the trail, you're going to find a throne. And whatever or whoever is on that throne is what is of highest value to you. And on that throne is what you worship. Here's the truth, though. If anything's on that throne other than God, it's what Scripture calls idolatry. And that will leave us unfulfilled. That will leave us unsettled. That will leave us dried. We're not wired for that. It will keep us from being the, God, the person that God has destined us to be because here's the truth. No one knows your God-given potential like the God who made you yourself. And Giglio continues, he says, uh, whatever you value most will ultimately determine who you are. If you worship money, you'll become greedy at the core of your heart. If you worship sinful habits, that same habit will grip your character. If you worship stuff, your life will become material and you'll lose all significance. If you give your praise to the God of yourself... Well, you'll become a little disappointing God to you and to everyone else who trusts in you. Here's the truth, people, friends. We are going to give our thanks to something. We're going to give our worship to something. We're going to give our life to something. And so David, in this key verse, this key VBS verse, he tells us, well, you might as well give your thanks, your worship, your life to the God of unending love. Can my helper, Kaylin, come up for a second? I got one last little thing to kind of close it out on. Kaylin, do me a favor. Hold this brand new PCC mug. If you're a visitor with us and you want a PCC mug, uh, go ahead and uh, take a connect at the back, fill it out, and put it in the uh, uh, cart out there in the front, and we will uh, we'll get you one of those. Here's what God's saying. He's saying, I'm the God of unfailing love, and I want a life with all of you now and forever. And the reason to, that David is saying, well, give your thanks to to, to, to God instead of the, the God of money or the, the God of yourself uh, or any of these other things, materials, is, is he's saying, see, God wants to pour out his grace onto you. God wants to pour out his grace onto you. He wants to give you that. God wants to pour out his love onto you. And he wants to, to, to love you in a way that's going to sustain you, not leave you dry, not leave you empty, not leave you wondering uh, what's at the end of this. And God wants to then pour out his faithfulness onto you. 
And the thing that, that, that separates God from, from all these other little gods or, or ourself is that even when the faithfulness seems like it's all run dry and there's only these little drops to, to sustain you, God shows that again and again there's more faithfulness that he wants to pour out on you. And when, and when it seems like, oh, no, no, there couldn't be any more. There's no way I have anything left. God pours out his faithfulness onto you. Thanks, Caitlin. You could take that mug with you. Sorry for the few droplets, but that, you know, that's part of the game. The God of unfailing love wants a life with you now and forever. And so our response as a people, as a church, is simply to be marked by this unfailing love. Uh, that's the second thing is, is worship the Lord. What does it mean for us? Worship the Lord. It means let us worship with our lives and give thanks uh, for what's being poured out to us to be marked by the unfailing love of God, not only to him, but to others. So let us give thanks for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Rejoin me as we pray. Welcome to BAM. God, we just come before you today and we come before your throne uh, and we want to praise you. We want to worship you. We want to uh, thank you for being the God of unfailing love. God, there's so many other things in our lives that, that, that want our attention, that want our worship. Uh, there's other things that, that, that we sometimes put on the throne. God, we know you're good. We know you forgive us. Forgive us for that. Uh, and let us put you on the throne. God, we thank you uh, just, just for the way that you have shown us through Luke 15, uh, how you have a heart for the lost and how you have a, a heart for all of us and now you want to spend uh, this unfailing love on us. And so, God, we, we hand ourselves over to you. We thank you, and we just ask, ask you to just let us be people who are marked by it. Let us be people who, who mark others for it. God, you are good. We praise you. We give thanks to you, as David says. We pray this in your name. Amen.